Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So rattle your drawers, don't forget your gold lame hat, and join us on our journey through Going Postal and the Complete Discography. Good evening and welcome to this edition of The Complete Discography, where we are recording the 33rd book in the Discworld series, Going Postal, first published in 2004, uh, which there are a lot of books that we read recently that were published in like 2003 and 2004. He was busy. Jumping right into it, uh, let's get on our silly titles. Anna, you want to lead us off? Yeah, Sure. I'm Anna, and I'm the postal worker in charge of Golem Paint Touch-Ups. Justin? I am Justin, postal cultist in charge of benefits and pension. I am Aaron, devotee of Bisonomy. And Kevin? I'm Kevin, probationary junior apprentice postal inspector, third class. I'm glad you got that promotion. Um, so, for those of you who don't recognize that voice, uh, our guest tonight is Kevin Culp, who has two parallel and really cool careers. Um Kevin, do you want to tell us a little bit about whichever one you want to talk about first? <laughs> sure. Uh, the thing that my my main career is, I do uh, fatigue and alertness consulting. I basically work with companies that run shift work, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week operations, um, managing fatigue risk and redesigning shift schedules and training people on how to survive the night shift and not fall asleep behind the wheel while driving home, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, originally, when I did that, I started to burn out and I realized it was because I didn't have any kind of creative outlet. So my other thing that I do is design tabletop role playing games. So one thing that we have asked, we have had many game designers on as guests um, because of our various interests. And we've always asked them, you know, what system or what framework would you want to run a Discworld game in? And I think you're the only person who has a 400 page answer for that question. <laughs> I think that's probably true. I this, so one of the secrets. So um, the I've written I don't know four or five, three, four, something like that. Um, different role playing games. The most recent of which is Swords of the Serpentine, which is Pelbert Grain Press's uh, Gumshoe Swords and Sorcery game. But the secret design goal was to let me run my own home uh, Discworld game. That's so, amazing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and you know, the nice thing is it works out into the swords and sorcery thing perfectly and it uh, really runs seamlessly, but there's a whole bunch of different Pratchett inspired game mechanics in the game. And in fact, the very first adventure I ever wrote for it was literally a city watch adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that, that works out really nicely. Yeah. Although I was also thinking that the, the time watch you could hack pretty easily into doing a time monks uh, uh, adventure. Okay. That's, probably true i hadn't really thought about that but yeah the the game before swords of the serpentine was time watch which is uh investigative of time travel with lots of stupid time tricks um <laughs> so yeah that's uh that can totally work awesome um we really appreciate you coming on especially because of of you know the the clear through line there to to swords of the serpentine um how did you get started reading uh discworld 
And let's just make sure that we come back to the Swords of the Serpent Man thing in the sense that uh, as we talk about Ankh-Morpork's Pork's politics, I have opinions. Uh, okay. So I, uh, <laughs> I started reading uh, uh, Discworld stuff back with the Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic. So that was probably, it was just before Equal Rights came out, right? So that probably puts it in 1986. Oh, wow. The uh, When I was in college. And uh, then followed it like probably until... I think Going Postal was the last book I read um, for a time. Like I took a pause after that. And part of the reason was, is that Going Postal was so good. I wasn't sure how exactly he was going to top that. Uh, and uh, and so then it, there was a while before I tried to catch up. But yeah, so that's it. So I started reasonably early and then followed each book when it came out. Uh, fairly religiously. I, I mean, aside from going postal, which is a great book, is there one that you, one or two that you ever like return to as a comfort read? Oh, sure. Um, Lords and Ladies is one of them. Mm. The concept of the Fey realm being not all, you know, pretty banners and pretty people. There's a line in Lords and Ladies that always sticks with me, right? Where uh, Pratchett talks about the fact that elves are terrific in the sense that they inspire terror. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the you know the elves are fantastic you know they're they're full of fantasy elves are terrific they inspire terror I'm like oh I can use that <laughs> uh, so yeah. yeah exactly that's I think that's one of them also uh, witches abroad is another one which I really enjoy I did uh, professional storytelling for a while and so I'm sort of deeply immersed in fairy tale stuff and that's a uh, that's a really lovely look at fairy tales as seen through the eyes of the witches. Mm-hmm. What did you try to do? Because there's like multiple eras of Ankh-Morpork, right? You know, there's the sort of the really early eras, which is just sort of knocking off Conan. Right. Uh, and then there's the, that Nari starts to experiment with things. And then there's really sort of like moist era, I want to mm-hmm. say. So like which era did you sort of start targeting when you started working on Swords of the Serpentine and, and which did you feel like you ended up doing? Well, so it's really interesting. So Serpentine, Swords of the Serpentine takes place in a city called Eversync, which I sort of gratuitously stole from my old D&D campaign, handed to my co-author, Emily Dresner, who is m- well known for doing the Dungeonomics uh, articles and blog posts about things like, hey, what happens to the value of a hundred gold piece pearl when you're really far away from the ocean uh, and you need to cast an identify spell? Um, what? Why is it that diviners should probably rule the world? Um, <laughs> the... Uh, and uh, the resulting city is pretty spectacular, I think. Um, and it's a canal-based, and we don't have to talk too much about it, but it's a <laughs> canal-based city that really was inspired, I think, a lot by Lankmar, which I would argue those early Terry Pratchett books are probably more Fafford and the Grey Mousery than they are mm. Conan-y, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it really is sort of a pastiche of lots of different things, but, uh, but there's a, a big piece of that. Ankh-Morpork is a huge part of that. One of the things I love about what Pratchett does is has these moving pieces, these power groups in Ankh-Morpork from Lord Vadnari, you know, and the Patrician to the dwarves and the trolls and the city watch and the mages and the assassins guild and all of the, and the merchants um, all sort of moving up against each other and bumping up against each other. And from the books was how I learned basically how to create adventure and stories from political groups that are sort of running into each other in a constrained space. The When I started reading Pratchett, um, 
you know, I really fell in love less. So I like for a long time, I was a big Rinsman fan and that kind of like a little Rinsman kind of goes a long way. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Terry agreed. He tried to kill off Rinsman every chance yeah. he could. <laughs> See, this is what you get for creating a character who just runs away. He's really good at running away. The city guard stuff and the things which take place in uh, Ankh-Morpork Park itself were a huge inspiration for me. I forget which book is it when uh, where the dwarves and the trolls are going at it, and uh, uh, that's Clay. well, I mean, Peter, I think that's I mean, every book, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> exactly, yeah. right? But that concept of hey, how do I create make it so that player characters can both gain information from the groups that they're loyal to and who have interest in them and also like manipulate them to a greater or lesser extent in order to help, help out with favors. Right. That really is sort of that chunk of the kind of the middle Pratchett books. The was hugely influential on me, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, that we've, I think expressed multiple times now is we're really sad that there was never really a good assassins school book. Mm-hmm. You know, we got we got some veterinary assassin school stuff in in Nightwatch, and like the first quarter of Pyramids. Right, but you know, it's you know, and as I think about this, um, in the in Swords of the Serpentine, all of the small gods in the city are pretty blatantly inspired by small gods. Um, the uh, we joke a lot about Anoia, uh, the goddess of of things jamming your kitchen drawers. Um, and how that is a completely valid god to worship, uh, even in the game. Um, the, I mean, I'm not quite sure if she's uh, in the game. You gain sorcery one of two ways. One way is that um, ancient runes of power leap off of a tablet or a stone wall someplace and bury themselves into their, your brain. That is pretty much directly inspired by what happened to Rincewind and how he got his <laughs> I huge, love that. huge, massive... Uh, uh, massive power. Uh, and the other way to do it is that there's a small God who sits there sitting in your soul, right? Who is trading you power for worship because you're one of the few people who remember or worship them and they're willing to trade you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and really this is just an excuse for me to crouch behind a player and whisper hideous things in their ear. That's <laughs> why don't you destroy them? You know, um, <laughs> um, we, and so it's fun for me, right? But also the um, the concept of small gods from small gods was one I hadn't run into earlier. But the idea that hey, there's all these little spirits will do anything for power. All you need to do is give them your belief is something that definitely translates into a lot of fun in the game setting. Mm-hmm. I I think that Eversync has one of it has like as I go into Pratchett. Cannot remember her name, but the, the central deity of Eversink. Uh, Denari. Right. Denari, got, right. Goddess of civilization and commerce. Might be the most <laughs> Ankh-Morpork thing ever. Um, and I, <laughs> If Terry had read that, he'd be like, yep, that's what we were getting to. Of the, the, idea of, <laughs> the idea of commerce and the city becoming its own god is. So this is... Uh... Um, a bit, this is really uh, falls firmly into my co-author Emily Dresner's court mm-hmm. um, and her complete genius, right? The concept right. of, hey, if you've got a, a goddess of commerce who's in charge of the city, right? Who's the primary deity, yet, like, it's a sin to give something away for free. So, because every transaction that takes place is actually a prayer, which means that if you've got a beggar who's begging for stuff, they'll give you, in exchange for your coin, they'll give you a rock. And it's a blessed rock. It doesn't do anything. No, it doesn't do anything, right? But the act of that exchange creates prayer power. Um, 
So it's it's like a credit card transaction. Yeah, like I mean, the, the, they take three percent. Basically, yes. A lot of this is inspired by Max Gladstone's craft uh, series, uh, which starts off with three parts dead, which is where a the equivalent of an arcane lawyer shows up at a city after their god dies, um, and the god has been murdered uh, through a very clever bit of of accounting. Uh, and uh, the idea, and the idea, be it, where the the god right has power coming in and has promises going out, which are prayers and and divine energy going out, and someone arranges it for a cascade that pulls out too much divine power and kills. Oh, them. over leveraged. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, and this idea of <laughs> hey, the city is the god, and the god is the city, and the thing, the way that you treat that affects the health of the god, which then affects what's happening in the city, is uh, really fun for me. Um, there are hints in the book where. Uh, people, if they're yeah, if when they're outside of Eversink, they forget that it's the most beautiful, fantastic place in the world. But they always remember when they go home, right? And that's not sinister even a little bit. So no, I that's, that's just every New Yorker I've met. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's and I don't think that's Ankh-Morpork is definitely a place of many, many gods, right? But um, having one that does feel a little Pratchett-esque is not uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I guess we should talk about the book, though. Yeah, let's talk um, about the book. Yes. Anna, do you want to? I love the book. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to lead us through the uh, the synopsis? Yeah. Um, with the with the caveat here of this is a great book. If you haven't read it, you should read it now. Um, but for those of you who have read it, I'll give you a little reminder here. Uh, so our plot begins with Moist von Lipving, who is currently imprisoned in Ankh-Morpork under the name of Alfred Spangler, awaiting death by hanging. Spangler's crimes include basically any con, scam, forgery, or nonviolent theft that you could possibly think of. The time comes and Moist is hanged, but then wakes up in Vetinari's office. The patrician has a job for Moist. Take over as the postmaster and bring the Ankh-Morpork post office back to life. There is a salary and a hat. Moist accepts since he doesn't see any other prospects that involve him being alive and promptly flees the city. His parole officer, a golem named Mr. Pump, retrieves him and he gets to work. The post office itself is in extreme disrepair with rooms full of undelivered mail and only two remaining employees, the elderly Tolliver Grote and an odd young man named Stanley. Moist gets to work retrieving the missing letters from the front of the building, excavating the postmaster's office and finding the promised hat, undergoing the trials of the secret society of the post, and realizing that the building is a lot weirder than he originally thought. The mass of letters has warped space-time, and Moist begins to see the post office as it once was, and the letters begin to speak to him and demand to be delivered. In addition, Grote shows him the device that caused the downfall of the post office, a sorting engine devised by none other but B.S. Johnson, which has filled the building with letters from the future and from alternate realities. Clearly, Moist is going to need some help sorting all of this out, pun absolutely intended. After a series of injuries among the formerly retired postmen, he heads to the Golem Trust to hire more workers. There he meets and is immediately smitten by Adora Bell Deerheart, who runs the trust and sees through him immediately, and who is the daughter of the man who invented the clacks. Speaking of which, we've had a parallel plot 
this whole time involving the clacks. The Grand Trunk was bought out by, and is currently being run to the ground by, a group of businessmen. Vetinari suspects, quite correctly, that some shady accounting went into the sale, and the post office reopening is putting pressure on the Grand Trunk and its board chairman, Reacher Gilt. Tensions rise between Gilt and the post office. The clacks have been run ragged, and with frequent malfunctions, the post is turning out to be more reliable as well as cheaper. Gilt torches the place while Moist is out to dinner with Miss Deerheart, and Moist arrives just in time to heroically rescue Mr. Grote, Stanley, and Tittles, the post office cat. Some parts of the building survive, but the huge backlog of undelivered mail is destroyed. Moist concocts a new plan and challenges Gilt to race messages to Genoa. During the race, however, he and a group of rogue clax operators intercept the message and send off a new one, claiming to be from the souls of men who died on the towers and exposing the financial fraud that Gilt and his cronies used to acquire the Grand Trunk. The clax is returned to the Deerhearts, who plan to repair and modernize it, and Moist is given a new job by the patrician. One of his main innovations as postmaster was the invention of pre-gummed stamps, which people had been using as money. So Moist's next task will be to revitalize the Ankmore Pork Mint. So I want to bring up something interesting because I think my book ended differently. Yeah, I don't think that happens at, at the end of this book, Anna. Reacher um, Gilt gets offered the job okay. of, the, yeah. of, of the mint and um, he chooses to walk out the door. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. okay, okay. Um, I was, I was, I guess I got those uh, yeah, that's, slightly crossed. That's um, the beginning of making money. Yeah. Because yeah, at the end, at the end, um, Moise ends up running the clacks temporarily as well. Right. Yeah. But, but uh, unsurprisingly, the next task we can we can all guess what it will be. No, the Duke created <laughs> fiat currency in this uh, 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 on accident. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that moment of joy when he realizes that he's literally printing money. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that's more convenient than those big, heavy, well, small, heavy coins. Right. Because I think it's previously established that like Ankhmore Park dollars are like the size of sequins. Huh. And I, I love that he also like, since he's the one printing it, he's like, what if I just take a sheet of stamps and use it to pay at the restaurant? Will that work? Mm-hmm. Only time will tell. <laughs> uh. Uh, it's, you know, and, and I think it's kind of interesting, right? Because one of the things when you first start reading the book and they're talking about the clacks, you mentioned the last episode that, They've kind of been foreshadowing the clacks for a couple of books, you know, three, mm-hmm. four books now mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and it runs into the, you know, the um, telegraph ham radio style of of jargon, which you don't immediately understand and which kind of gets trickled in throughout the thing. But I laughed when I was reading this because I thought, oh, man, compared to say, like, remember Lord of the Rings and the signal fires of Gondor? Uh, and those poor bastards, like up on top of a mountain, whose only job <laughs> is like once every fifty years to light a bonfire. One person gets drunk; they uh, accidentally set a fire, and everybody scrambles for war. The clax is much more efficient, mm-hmm. but uh, um, and how that becomes a plot device is really interesting to me. Yeah, because like three books ago, we had somebody giving their C mail uh, address. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, in Monstrous Regiment, um, Blouse is like, you know, you could improve this design a little bit. And uh, developing the information warfare that they then again use the exact same thing of like making a a tower look further away than it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I really hope that Blouse ends up like, you know, working with the smoking new. 
<laughs> because that would be that honestly be Blouse living his best life. <laughs> yeah, or or developing competing Clax technology from Borogravia. Justin, this is you know I say this with increasing frequency, but this was a book that I was waiting for you to get to because I was really 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 excited to hear what you thought of this new protagonist and the way the plot sits. Yeah, I think this is uh, okay. This is like I, I think I've said this a couple of times, but there 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 are certain books that are like the ones that like you get like you that that like are like oh these are big seminal books i mean like the last one we really had for this was night watch and i know thud and snuff are like vimesian books and they're talked about but they're like i've not i have not heard shatter to the level of this one to the level of this one so um mm-hmm. yeah no it's the first thing i think that is very noticeable is that there is a different pacing in this book than a lot of other ones. Part of that is that the the two main narrators of the book, Reacher Gilt and uh, Moist, which I apologize to our listeners because we are going to set the record for the most times we're going to say Moist, moist. in 90 minutes, um, <laughs> are both incredibly clever people and they are both filthy criminals. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and honestly, Moise von Lipwig is what everybody thinks they're playing when they're trying to play a rogue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the thing I think that I was thinking about as I was reading it was like the difference between a Vimes book and and a Moist book is the, is the genre. The, the protagonists are in entirely different genres. And, you know, mm-hmm. even when he's Lord Commander Vimes, he's still the hard-boiled detective. So you have to have that, like, two-thirds of the book is set up. Whereas Moist is always scrambling two inches away from the, the plot catching up to him. Yeah, it, it's, I think the best way to sum up this book from what I have, like, from from reading it, actually, I listened to it. This was, this was the first, like, non-Tiffany book I listened to on audiobook, was let's steal a civil service, leverage theme plays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, right? Vimes is really what Vimes is in charge of most definitely a fantasy city. Yeah. And this really uh, is, could easily take place in Victorian London. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's a little bit of a different genre, but you know, when I think about going postal, like it reminds me a little bit of the truth. Was it, is it the truth? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, except the, except the protagonist here is so much more interesting. Oh, than yeah. Uh, than the protagonist and the truth yeah. was for me at least. I also find it really interesting between both the bad guy and uh, our hero have a lot in common, except for the fact that Reacher Guild is an alpha predator and really a predator. Um, mm-hmm. And when Moist finally meets him and he gets that flash of wow, if situations were different, I would throw myself at his feet and ask to learn from him. And mm-hmm. instead, I'm going up against him. Really, uh, is kind of kind of a fun thing for me at least because it's a very different set of villain and uh and protagonist that i usually see it is the 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 dynamic you always see where the villain says like we're not so different you and i but this is actually true for once mm-hmm. yeah stephen briggs does the best voice for reacher guilt yeah it's something yeah. like this where he's always got a menacing whisper and it's it's if it if Reacher Guild was 
any, like, was on, like, a lower level of, like, he's not quite intimidating as a villain. Like, he's not, like, he's not aggressively intimidating. He is, like, coldly, like, he's, like, coldly frightening. Um, Mm -hmm. He has people to do as intimidating for him. Yeah, if he was any less of that, that voice would just not work. But it's just... I actually also really love Mr. Pump's voice. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the Stephen Briggs Mr. Oh, Pump. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just the, that audiobook is Mr. fantastic. Mr. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> wow. It's, it's kind of interesting. I have a, an old acquaintance um, who uh, is uh, probably, like, would probably be considered a psychopath. Um, not in the I'm stabbing people sense, but in the, if you, like, if we took the test, um, if you're part of his family or his community, like you're a person. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you're a thing. Um, and it's made him be incredibly successful in business. And I'm glad I don't work for him. Uh, the But uh, it's a little bit, I, like I got some of that from Reacher Guilt here, where like as a predator, like he cares about himself and he cares about the game and he doesn't really, you know, he's never spared two thoughts for how other people think. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a long way of saying I loved it. I fucking loved it. Um, we're we're going to get into, like, I, I think we might, like, get into, like, there might be some declaratives later on about where I'd rank this, but. <laughs> Anna, do you have any, like, initial thoughts uh, on this most recent reread? Oh, it was honestly even better than I remembered it being. Um, like There are chapters. Yeah, there's chapters. And the chapter, the, the, the chapter headings with oh. the, like. The, the, the teaser the, the little it's teaser really with fun. the you know in which da, 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 you know where where you know everything is lined out for the chapter of like this just, mm-hmm. it's a really specific like trope but i love it it's and like it fits into the like heist thing really well too mm-hmm. because that's that's kind of where heist films always are great is that they tell you what they're going to do and then right. the interesting part is seeing how they did it well, and I mean the the whole find the lady thing too. You know, it, Moist goes into the theory of the of the small cons so repeatedly, and is like, "I tell you what I'm doing. I tell you what I'm doing, and you believe me." There is a part of Moist, despite all of his protestations, that really like the diff- the thing that makes him different between Reacher and him is he gets a joy out of somebody finding out and possibly catching on to him. Mm. Yeah. Like, like, sure, it sucks when he gets found out and stuff, but the thrill of it is definitely a part of it for him. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what initially attracts him to... Adorabelle Deerheart is that she's she's just like wow uh, a, an absolute slime ball just walked through my door and he's like I love you <laughs> I do want to talk about that relationship yeah that, absolutely that's, yeah um, um so the, the, but, yeah, do, go ahead. do we want to talk about that now or because uh, I wanted to ping off of something that Kevin said which is the comparison to the truth um because I feel like you know, we we've talked over and over about how we have these like sets of books or characters where we have the, 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 you know, first version and then the revisiting. And I feel Mm -hmm. like this is the revisiting of the truth. It's got a lot of the same kind of like new, new technology or, you know, thoughts or something like that. That's like, you know, rolling downhill almost unstoppably. And the characters are trying to keep up with this, like, 
thing that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but Moist is just so much better better than William. Uh, this is definitely a theme in Pratchett, right? Where, hey, let's draw, we've got the still pool of the setting. Let's drop a giant boulder, which is technological change in, and let's see where those ripples go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, Moist is a much better person <laughs> or a much yeah. more interesting character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it has kind of the same the same kind of frenetic energy as the truth. Mm-hmm. Except I think that Terry realized one of the things that Terry realized is that um, he has he had overplayed the people want to remove the patrician because, you know, yeah, no, gen- generic nobility is my villain. Instead, he's like, fuck it. Capitalism is the enemy here. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that works really well. Well, Betnari yeah. is very, very good at his job, right? Yes. I mean, uh, I mean, he's basically Reacher Guilt, but cares about the city. I mean, mm-hmm. he uses the exact same tactics. He mm-hmm. just uses them ethically, I guess. Broadly we've speaking, ca- we've kind of got three peas in a pod here in terms mm-hmm. of like comparable character archetypes taken in wildly different directions. And I mean, there is that fan theory out there that Vetinari starts molding Moist as his replacement is, you know, and so you have that Moist seeing two paths. Uh, He could go Reacher. He could become Reacher Guilt. He has the skills or he could, you know, he could use his skills for good. (laughs) So something, something approximating good. And Anna, you know, you said something that I find really interesting, right? Which is when we talked about how this book moves really fast. And I think that's interesting. That's actually built into Moist's character where like you never do anything halfway, right? If you're going to do it, amp mm-hmm. it up to amp it up to 100 and com- promise the moon and then figure out a way to deliver it because it's it's not fun if you only do have a halfway decent job. And mm-hmm. that's even that's even a quote in the book that he's the the like, no, run, you know, and when somebody says like you know you've gotta you've gotta walk before you can run, he's like no, you gotta run before you can crawl. Like yeah. Just yeah. go for it and like <laughs> you know outsmart the universe before it figures out what you're doing. And you know in in RPGs at least every time I get a uh, a player who who has that vibe, I feel like it's the best game. Absolutely, I you know one of the reasons that I that we built sort of the serpentine in such a way that you can play a character who never touches a weapon and who's just as effective both in social situations and combat um, as somebody with a giant sword is because of this book and this type of archetype. I want someone to be able to play an incredibly socially adept um, con man or, uh, or character and not have to suffer from it in terms of uh, how much fun they're having. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the core themes of the book. Um, I mean, one of those is definitely just what happens when you have rampant unchecked capitalism and, uh, people who are unwilling to, uh, who are unwilling to play by any rules. Mm -hmm. And specifically the like vulture capitalism as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Buying something up and then making money by ruining it. Yeah. You know, it's it's very of its time. This is a book that that is very respondent to the the previous eight years that it existed in. Uh, it's interesting that hope is definitely a theme of the book, but also the fact that you know hope is great, but you kind of have to make the results yourself mm-hmm. um, if you want to deliver on that. Hope hope in and of itself isn't quite enough. 
I think another thing that I find really interesting, this is a book um, that talks about the effect of small choices Mm -hmm. Um, from the very beginning where Moist is given the choice to walk out the door. uh, Of course, the door has no floor to it. So that's probably a poor choice. Um, (laughs) And the fact that Vednari steers him into doing exactly what's needed to be done, which of course is Vednari's great talent um, while still maintaining the illusion or the actuality of choices. And throughout the book, he has the chance to make really bad choices like Reacher Gilt does, and generally speaking, does not. And as a result, all the consequences which then come from that, I uh, I think is a pretty solid theme. Yeah. One of the interesting things, too, with, you you mentioned you know, Moist with the choice to um, walk out the door or not. And Moist does go up to that door and open it and look through it. Which puts him honestly smart, smarter than Reacher Guilt, who I think just walked through the door. Self confidence, um, not always great. That <laughs> you know, I I think like whether it's a self of sense of self preservation or like an additional layer of curiosity or something like that. You know, we have Guilt is given the same choice that Moist is, and he fails it. Yeah. One of the other things I, I think is really interesting is the idea that there's all these letters, right, which haven't been delivered in decades and decades and decades. And they're basically, dis- some of them at least, are decisions which have just been stopped cold by the death of the post office. And when they start getting delivered, then that starts those decisions going again. People who never got married end up getting married. Somebody who got the dead mother's jewelry ends up getting in a fight with her sister about it because she shouldn't have gotten it, right? Mm-hmm. Um and the idea that, hey, that things are still important, even if they're not resolved. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's like some parts of the book that do sort of like fall off towards the back end with like the burning of the post office and how everything's resolved with the the, the race that like hmm. I sort of kind of would have liked to see how eventually like all of that back mail was, you know, resolved yeah or or like what it looks like as that changes and stuff and you know but i mean that's maybe maybe it's one of those things where it's like terry's like i'm 250 pages into this book i have i only have one third of the book left and i need to finish this yeah now i want to run a swords of the serpentine campaign where we give the uh heroes control over everything's post office they've got to deliver all the old mail and each adventure is set off by the delivery of a single letter which causes some kind of crisis that our heroes then have to go and solve that's great and then you get exactly what you're talking about there justin right you get closure on not everything right but on the interesting ones it's kind of fun yeah that that would be that would be really fun the part of that that's a little bit weird where it seems like the bulk of the letters were kind of letters from a different universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that was a little weird and like maybe didn't need to go there, but yeah. I mean, the, the sorting machine is there to do a couple of things. Uh, one of which is to stop a threat, um, you know, <laughs> but it, the whole, the new pie thing, I feel like it, it was some small joke in Terry's head that <laughs> probably nobody ever is going to get unless they know something very specific about like British mail in like the 1980s or something. Uh, but also, right. I mean, the reason that the sorting machine is there is it's the MacGuffin. It's the reason right. the post office fails. Right. Um, 
Yep. And I'm sure that he had to have a reason. And uh, wrapping the wizards into it was a pretty fun way to do it, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, you couldn't fill the post office with that much mail by, like, normal means. Yeah. Although, you you know, you keep seeing those articles about, like, the, the FedEx driver who, like, stuffs in a ravine full of packages or, or a postal worker who, you know, they find has, like, 30 years of undelivered mail in their, in their shed. Yeah. But the, like, sheer quantity that's in the post office, right. there's no there's no way that people would have kept giving them mail. Co- cover, covered in a preserving crust of of bat, of, of, of pigeon guano. You, yeah. you say that, Anna, but you haven't seen my to-do list, and things just keep getting <laughs> added to it, right? And it, and the things at the top of the to-do list are covered with this co- fine coating of pigeon guano. And, um, and they just keep pushing. And they just keep growing. Yes, exactly. So uh, other things that I, you know, really struck me, especially this read through was all of the, all of the hacker culture stuff with, and, and, you know, all of the special language and all of the like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to work this problem until the bitter end. And, uh, and the, the whole thing with the woodpecker, which also, you know, ultimately is not used was a very, uh hacker culture kind of vibe to it. And that's, that's an Mm -hmm. interesting that's an interesting point too. It's not something I got into the into in the summary, but the the woodpecker and moist decision not to use it is mm-hmm. really interesting um, because we've got the the hackers who are like, you know what, fuck it, like burn it all down, we'll build it up again better. Mm-hmm. And moist like, that's not how the world works. Yeah, well, but also he'd been a couple, you know, a couple dozen pages earlier been told, uh, you killed two point. Six one people, you know, by, through your nonviolent, you know, crimes, yeah. and yeah. then he's like, "Well, this could theoretically kill people, so maybe I shouldn't." Yeah, I think the other book, the other thing the book does is really take a loving look at hyper specific nerd culture when it comes to collecting stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, stamp collectors <laughs> really are like that. The pin collector rang really true yeah my my late grandfather was a um he collected stamps very avidly and he was he also collected coca-cola memorabilia and like our and he he was of like of an even earlier generation of people working on computers um and like he the reason he moved from kansas to california with my uh, with my grandmother was that he could work on one of the early computer systems out here and like and so i remember like you know going to to like stamp shows with him and like like you know this is like as a very small kid but it's like i remember that and you know there there are parts of it that are very familiar to me and like a like oh yeah i i you know this is a very specific kind of thing i found it fascinating right when they're talking about how the clacks work and the idea of sending the names of dead clacksmen up and down the line. Mm-hmm. Like it, which mm-hmm. really makes me wonder, Hey, like did actual telegraph writer telegraph operators do this? I know that some of the things like telegraph operators could, they learned each other's rhythm enough that they could send each other messages just on how they transmitted completely unrelated messages. Mm-hmm. Um, just through their their telegraphing style, they could communicate things to other people. Like there's this whole other sublanguage, and now I'm curious as to whether that also has a analog in the real world. Interesting. I mean, I think that you know, at least for for sort of diving back into the hacker 
culture stuff, there definitely were people, especially in the early days, who just knew the code that other people would like to usually used. Mm -hmm. And so you could identify somebody's code based on like what they were, how they wrote something. Yeah. With the, with the like pin and stamp collection too, that's one of the things that's also really interesting in terms of how it's, how it's written because the, the point that you made of like, that is a, it's a loving portrayal. Um, And part of that is that moist, never either and internally or externally makes fun of stanley for those obsessions Mm -hmm. he's not above using it like when he wants to manipulate stanley he's like gosh i found this pin what could it be Mm -hmm. it was it was nice to see like you know, there's no like internal monologue about how collecting pins is stupid like moist goes and learns about it so that he can interact with stanley he treats it like another language yeah. is what he does. And he learns it and he uses it. Because Moist is a chameleon. And even if it is based off of an originally predatory methodology, he's treating people, he's treating his coworkers like marks. But the, but the end goal here is not to, <laughs> is not to take money from them because, well, um, he, they don't have any money. <laughs> um, but it's to survive his current job and make sure that, you know, and... Through that, he ends up accidentally making friends with people. Oh, no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's superb at social engineering, but I think he's also doing it, you know, in a a way to be kind. There's lots of ways to manipulate people. And he tries it. He does it in such a way that people want to help him. Um, And, you know, and and discovers a little thing about friendship along the way. Uh, But, yeah. And he learns. and, and, And the interesting thing is with Stanley, he learns how to make that an outlet. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's a thing through, like, the first act of the book where Stanley has, like, anxiety attacks. And mm-hmm. yeah. that does not come at up at all. Once these stamps come in and he's been put in charge of this and he's like, oh, wait, I have a creative outlet for doing all this? I mean, that's yeah. that's the other thing, too. Like, Moist is actually a fairly decent manager. Yeah. yeah. Because he listens to people and he figures out what they're good at and then he puts them in charge of that. Yeah. It's like it's like the complete opposite of the thing where somebody is like extremely skilled at some sort of technical thing and thus it's like oh this person who's extremely good at this highly technical thing let's make them boss like Mr. Pony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like and then you get that person who doesn't know anything about how to manage people. And Moist is like the exact opposite of that. He knows like he can learn just enough of anything to get to get by, but what he knows is people, and so he exactly. can manage the people. Exactly, it's good DMing. That's what it is. You learn just enough about <laughs> anything to, to to skate people off on their on on their course. Uh, I mean, the the other thing that really sort of comes up near the end as we learn more about the the double lever or whatever the 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 technique is called uh, that Kevin you called out too is the, is the banking crisis and. You know, he pulls too big to fail those specific words for years before Bear Stearns. I mean, probably it ex- I'm 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 an idiot, so there probably it probably existed somewhere else before, but like it's prescient. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that the banker the, the, the real financiers sort of circle up at the end once once the dark clerks have done all of their work 
and are like, you know, moving, moving pretend money around in their notebooks and handshakes and stuff. And like, everything's fine. And the bank will open tomorrow. It has, you know, such 2008 vibes. Okay. I just, yeah. I just checked. I, I, Cause I was like, I, it, the, 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 the term had been coined by a congressman in 1984, continental Illinois. Uh, okay. But yeah, it's like, you know, it, like the concept is there. Um, Mm-hmm. Knowing Terry, it's probably something he read, he, he read or heard once, and it stuck. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really the people who are the, the people who are running the Grand Trunk. I mean, it's frighteningly like. I mean, we are, we are sitting here right now. We're in the last week. I mean, like you look at, War, at what Warner Brothers Discovery has done in the last month. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is basically the grand trunk, but for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was reading this like, well, all that was going on. And I was like, wow. <laughs> um, Cause yeah, it's just, it's entirely, Oh, we're, we're canceling million, like, you know, hundred million dollar projects for a possible tax credit. So we don't have to, you know, pay subsidies. You know, it's like, it's so ridiculous. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, there are the people who, you know, come up with the idea and are letting people in so that they can help with capital and getting pushed out summarily and mm-hmm. robbed. Yeah. I mean, that that is just pulled, I mean, from many, many different things, yeah. but it feels very, very com- uh, comparable to like the first wave.com stuff. This also makes me want to like read up on a bunch of the history of telecoms as well, because that's something that I'm not particularly well versed in. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of parallels there. Um, like you were saying, Kevin, with the, with the telegraph operators, but yeah. Um, or, or, you know, he might have Ma Bell on his mind or something. Yeah, like I mean, that. the, the, the dot com bubble only burst three years, like three years before this book. So it's right. probably yeah. right on his mind there, especially with how. And he was very online. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about buttons? Yeah. Um, can we just say like the plot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a book that there's like there's it's full of so many like singular good moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tracked it. I ended up highlighting seventy five things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the the little small one that I because you're entirely right. Like at, my first thought was the whole book. But, you know, there was a little small one where, where uh, Richard Gilt's Igor is, like, thinking about heading, heading home because, you know, that's what Igors do when they sense things going bad. And he says, I think I'll head back to the mountains. At least the monsters there have the decency to look like ones. Yeah. Uh, I've got a couple that – so the first is, unfortunately, the post office came to be seen not as a system for moving the mail efficiently to the benefit and profit of all, but as a money box. And so it collapsed, losing both mail and money. A lesson for us all, perhaps. Um, and then, of course, of course, Mr. Pump explaining to Moist, like, all of the ways that he's harmed people through his actions, even if they were not violent. Um uh, Kevin, do you do you want to do the quote because I cannot I cannot match your Mr. Pump voice. <laughs> oh, that's it. You have stolen and embe- oh, I can't do it. Darn it! I could do it before. <laughs> no, it's all right. Joey, go ahead. 
Um, you have stolen, embezzled, defrauded, and swindled without discrimination, Mr. Lipvig. You have ruined businesses and destroyed jobs. When banks fail, it is seldom bankers who starve. Your actions have taken money from those who had little enough to begin with. In a myriad small ways, you have hastened the deaths of many. You did not know them. You did not see them bleed. But you snatched bread from their mouths and tore clothes from their backs for sport, Mr. Lipvig. For sport, for the joy of the game, which yeah. that's that's such a good paragraph. Yeah, I love all the golem in, in, in this book too. I feel like Mister Pump is the real hero of this whole book, right? <laughs> <laughs> that I feel totally like is. Yeah. I feel like without him explaining that to Moist in that way, I don't think that I don't think that the book would have proceeded the way that it did. He needed that. And he, he brushes it off at first, but then he keeps thinking about it. Mm-hmm. For me, the um, the moment when things really got real is um, early on when Vednari is meeting with the businessman from the Grand Trunk, including Richard Gilt. And he talks about the process, which is what happens in the real world when um, financiers come in in order to encourage or uh, you know buy a stake in a growing business and they offer money and these are people who are not used to money and so they sign things and they eventually find out what's the uh exact phrasing here it's uh well this is all fine because it's clear to all of the basic enterprise is going to be a money tree one day it doesn't matter if they sign over another 15 percent. it's just money it's not important in the way that shutter mechanisms are is it and then they find out that yes yes it is it is everything Suddenly the world's turned upside down. Suddenly those nice people aren't so friendly anymore. Suddenly it turns out those bits of paper they signed in a hurry were advised to sign by people who smiled all the time. Means they don't actually own anything at all. Not patents, not property, nothing. Not even the contents of their own head. Um, And that is, you know, something which happens all the time with entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was nice to see it put so succinctly. And we've even made entertainment out of it. Like we have TV shows about it. And it's, it's, you know, it's find the lady right on TV. I am this is, it's also like one of the things that is a very button thing for me in this is I can't like the, when the performative, the performative worry by the grand trunk, private business people about the cost of running the post office of it doesn't make money. And you know, it's, it's going to be a drain on our, it's going to be a drain on the city. It's going to raise our taxes to people, <laughs> you don't pay taxes to people who, do not, who most certainly do not pay taxes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The privatization of public goods. And it really, I mean, and of course it's the post office, right? Yeah. Because, you know, here we are with exactly that, line of thought and line of reasoning being used to gravely wound the U.S. Postal Service. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously Terry's coming from an English background or the post is, I would say, as, as close as you can get to a sacred entity in in, in civil service. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I'm, uh, I, there's just so much that's going on here. I mean, it, it really feels like this is a book where, Terry is homing in just like on one thing where he's been wanting to get to for a while, but maybe has just been delaying it because he wants to get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you want to do favorite bits? Yeah, I think so. You know, jumping though off of, of what Kevin brought up, like the, 
the meta stuff of what veterinary does in this book. He's so veterinary in this book. Like here's the thing, right? Which is that (laughs) I don't think veterinary gives a damn about the post office. What happens is that veterinary sees the grand trunk as a potential threat. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, sees moist as a convenient weapon that someone has dropped on the ground and decides to point moist at them. Um, doing so as he always does, which is, you know, he doesn't send him, send him off directly. He merely puts him in charge of something which is doubtlessly going to tip the dominoes in such a way that it directly interferes. Because yeah. he does this glorious social engineering thing of knowing what drives people and how pride works and, uh, and is able to figure out roughly how that's going to then proceed. It's beautifully done. Yeah, um, I, the the quote that I pulled out of, that Moist says about him is that the difference is that he veterinary arranges for you to pull your own strings. Right. Yes, that's yeah. exactly correct. Uh, but also, this is where the where veterinary's clock comes in, which does not tick exactly on on the correct seconds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sometimes it speeds up. Sometimes it slows down. There's actually an actual phenomenon is that if you actually look at a second hand of a clock, it will it will seem to slow down. Mm-hmm. And it's just a brain. It's just a brain thing. And the fact that he deliberately designs it to uh, to uh, tick tock on the uh, inconsistently is glorious. Somebody also made a, a a wall clock that I think is driven by like a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino mm-hmm. or something, which does which does have a random counter that randomly speeds up and slows down the the second hand. <laughs> Those people are monsters. <laughs> Uh, but uh-huh. I think I think that they did it so that overall it will keep the correct time too. Exactly, because that's the trick. Right. But then also the manipulation that he does in those meetings, where he like lets them, he lets those business people think that he doesn't know what they're doing, when like they should know that he knows exactly what they're doing. Yeah, you yeah. know, and plays dumb and lets the lets the stupid ones walk into his trap. I, I think it's I think it is like. Everybody assumes that Veterinari can't be Veterinari because, like, everybody Veterinari faces is, a, is like an idiot. And they think, well, <laughs> I'm an idiot and I've risen to this amount of power. This guy must be an idiot, too. <laughs> but no. And it's only, it's only people like Reacher Gilt who can see exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. They realize, oh, no, I'm in, I'm in, a, I'm in a room with a python. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting by like, he has this lovely style and Pratchett writes it perfectly of not accusing anyone of anything, just asking polite questions, which make it clear exactly how ludicrous somebody's approach is. Um, and it's, it delights me every time. It's one of the reasons I love reading Vednari bits. And, uh, and as I think you said, Aaron, right. He's, he's, he's just Vednari the heck out of being Vednari in this. Um mm-hmm the doing what he does best very very well uh, and i love i love i think that's one of the reasons that i particularly like this book um john rogers of leverage describes it as competence porn right people yeah. who are good at their jobs doing their jobs <laughs> yeah. really well um it's the same it's a reason that i design the games i do because the characters tend to be the same way they're skilled at their job and they do it well uh and and in here with Vednari, with Moist, with Reacher Kelt, right? These are people who are already playing their A game, clashing with one another. And it's and that's even true for Mr. Pump. That bit that you described before, Anna, about um, when he sort of gives uh, Moist the moral lecture, right? Like, yeah. he's not going to get fooled. He's not bumbling about this. He's been around for hundreds of years. It's lovely to see. Yeah. yeah. 
I also do, you know, speak sort of jumping uh, a step back from veterinary, the, the introduction of the dark clerks who are, you know, forensic accountants and assassins. <laughs> they, they're just like, they're vet, they're baby veterinaries. They're, they're scholarship kids from, yeah. from the assassins. They, they are bureaucrats who, who have multi-classed into a, a, a combat <laughs> profession of their choice. <laughs> delights me so much. Um, when my co-author um, got to, uh, when I got to run a game of swords for her, her character was somebody with, I think, four or five ranks of laws and traditions as she played a combat lawyer. Um, and uh, Beautiful. And yeah, and it was, um, it was terrifying to see is actually what it was. It was terrifying. And I, it feels a lot the same way. Well, we're talking about veterinary and like him being at peak veterinary here. I wanted to ping off of something that we talked about earlier, which is that we don't, Vetinari is not directly in threat in this book, the way that mm-hmm. he has been in a lot of the other books where we've had Vetinari. Mm-hmm. He's not being like targeted by somebody who wants to depose him. He's not being, you know, poisoned and, you know, slowly waiting for Vimes to figure out how he was poisoned. Wasting away like right. a Victorian orphan waiting for Vimes to get to the plot. <laughs> um but i think i think that allows us to see not a different side of him but like it it completely reframes him he's playing a different side of the thud board is what he's doing yeah he's on the offensive yeah exactly that that he's been on the defensive for a lot of books and it's nice to see a different side of him it's what happens when you don't shell veterinary for half the plot and it's, you get to yeah. see Veterinari as a fully operational uh, battle tyrant. <laughs> and speaking of thud, I think it'll be interesting. I think that we should maybe revisit this a bit at the end of you know our discussion for the next book, um, mm-hmm. which is titled Thud. And because we there's the there's the ongoing discussion of who plays what side. Mm-hmm. With Vetinari and Reacher and Horsefry and you mm-hmm. know this this ongoing thread, and I think that we should revisit that once we all are reminded better of Thud. Yeah, definitely. I also do want to take the time now, though, to talk about probably the most interesting love story after the first book with Sam and, and Sybil. Like, I don't know. Oh, I'd I, say they're even better than Sam and Sybil. Oh yeah. He writes weird people so well. Yeah. Listen, if all Adora would have needed to do is put out a cigarette on Moist, and this would have been a top ten couple of all time. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that she's got, you know, all this bitterness and competence and uh, grief um, bo- uh, bottled, bottled up um, into just being keenly aware of who around her can be trusted and who can't be trusted mm-hmm. and seeing right through moist right away. Um, and yet being interested enough in him to, to find out more. Yeah. It's practice continues to get better at writing, writing women than he started off. And mm-hmm. this is a, this is a fun romance. I like this one. Yeah. The scene in the fancy restaurant <laughs> oh my gosh. where, where <laughs> she grabs a knife and starts to go after Richard Gilt and, and Moise is like, you've got the wrong knife. That's for the fish. I think he actually is. He says, you can't do that. And then says, <laughs> right. yeah, which, which says that, Oh, he understands. Exactly. 
I, I love these two weirdos. Yeah, it's it's the whole thing of just like Pratchett just shouldn't write normal people. That's where he fails. <laughs> it's like when when he tries to write like tradition when he tries to write traditional heroines, mm-hmm. um, look at the first dozen books of Discworld. Um mm-hmm. that's where it goes wrong. It's you just you, just need weirdos. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that he really sort of showcases here is the fact that their relationship, the things their relationship is predicated on or the things that drive it aren't like Moist isn't a normal guy and she isn't a normal woman and they happen to complement each other in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I-, I love the nickname that he gives her too. Spike? Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it's like, he's like, as after they've had the like, you know, jokes about how terrible each of their names are. He's mm-hmm. like, well, is there something, is there something that like, what do your friends call I you? Call you. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, well, they call me killer, but you're not allowed to call me that. Yeah. My brother calls me killer. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, coming up with spike rather like, you know, <laughs> with a different character, you'd think to like Dora or something like that, but no, it's spike. Yeah. I think it's even more telling in, earlier when he says, what do your friends call you? And, uh, uh, and he predicts the fact that she basically says, I don't have any friends, right? Yeah. They, they don't call me yeah. anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes. And, and the, the most dangerous shoes on the continent. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is such a lovely inversion of the, the burly and strong on the arm stuff. Mm-hmm. It, that's actually a really interesting point, right? That she, um, Moist never raises a finger to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mr. Pump certainly intimidates people, but I, d- does he ever actually end up hurting anyone? No. He gets very close several yeah, times. Not yeah, not in any real um, conceivable, not any, like, real tangent way. He, like, uh, almost hits Stanley. Right. That's right. Close, but uh, but doesn't, right? Exactly. So yeah. the one bit of violence here, all the violence is concentrated on her and gloriously done, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really, uh, that poor bastard with the, um, who got the, the, shoe, the heel through his foot. <laughs> uh other fun bits folks want to pull because i feel like i've dominated uh, they clamped the horse they clamped yeah, the gosh. horse i the i loved the little i loved the bit with the, the like the, the weird post postal cultists yeah you know, or just like oh yeah you have to be you have to be initiated as a mailman yeah, the initiation ceremony is always has always been one of my favorites. Yeah. Especially the bit at the end. Doubly especially since we just recently watched Person of Interest. Um, with with the 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 the, 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 the Lipfixers. Lip yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he speaks you know, he just speaks a little authoritatively, you know. They're just like, Hello, hello, yes, yes, yes. And, and then he <laughs> finds out that they're not actually purebred. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, <laughs> Well, that was lucky. Yeah, exactly which is a trope right. I love in, in like cons. Is mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, guy just like, oh, I know this. Does it and t- gets told, no, that's not the you know that you know it shouldn't have gone like that. And he's like, oh, but that speaks to the confidence of the confidence yeah. man too. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Yeah, like uh, I mean, it's it's even like he even mentions it in the the you know bitter end of the book where he's going to the hospital and he's like as as long as you get past the front door and look like you know what you're doing you're fine it's um back in college a long time ago in social psych we watched several um candid camera 
episodes uh, from like the 1950s. And the one that's always stuck with me is the um, Delaware is closed today episode where they put a person with a hat and a clipboard doesn't say anything on the hat, doesn't say anything on the clipboard, and one of those wooden arms that goes down across the highway and basically just told people that Delaware was closed for cleaning. And it worked. <laughs> I mean That's on that on that nasty. note, uh one of one of my coworkers has keeps trying to convince me that Delaware is not real. I mean it shouldn't be. I, I don't think it is. I, I haven't seen any proof to the contrary. Yeah, yeah. There I, are more corporations than people in Delaware, therefore it is not real. Yeah. <laughs> um, her her primary her primary piece of evidence is that so so uh, her kid is going to school in New York, so she drives across the Delaware Memorial Bridge often. And she's like, You don't build a memorial to something that's still alive. <laughs> that's that's You're a good not point. Wrong. That that's that's a good I point. Mean, like Delaware just feels like a thing that Maryland made up to feel superior to. Like they have two things of like we we've got Delaware and we have jousting and we have crabs. That's it. You're not wrong. Uh, As a West Coaster, this is what it feels like. Oh boy. Okay. Um I also really liked the uh inversion of the Asimov's rules of robotics for the golems. Yeah. Where they're like uh, those are just rules and we have more rules. I love the fact that everybody thinks they know that golems can't hurt people and it's like, well, that's not exactly correct. That's a great trope. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the industrial hazards present in the post office? Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> many industrial hazards. I can't even. And he's sleeping on the bed of letters. His sleep quality is going to be dreadful. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> really, it's just it's just an ocean nightmare. So my very first job out of college was working for North America's largest manufacturer of shoulder pads for women's clothing. Um Back in remember That's back specific. in the, yeah remember back in the late eighties early nineties when all the all the shoulders were huge yeah yeah, yeah. oh I'm yeah partially to, partially at fault for that um and <laughs> it was in a factory in South Boston and it was there was one it was a huge big old rambling nineteenth century mill building still filled with lots of old mysterious um, uh, textile equipment but there was one working fire extinguisher in the entire place Ooh. um the uh, <laughs> and I read and i read this book and i and you know in the the post office of course is falling apart i'm like oh that seems vaguely familiar yeah <laughs> i want to talk about how i've worked with everybody in this fucking post office <laughs> um, i'm so sorry i like including miss macalariat oh i know miss macalariat um i I'm, only two of them i encountered in public service uh miss macalariat was at a later job uh the Young, excitable, I'll say neurodivergent person who is very into something and needs a very specific diversion. Yeah, check. Um, the old the old person who's been there forever, who is very insistent on how things are done, even if it means nothing's getting done. Check. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The old imperious woman who ha- who imposes oh, and also that person who like that second person also has a lot of self like home remedies for shit that they push on other people check absolutely check um <laughs> or or an mlm right <laughs> i mean those those two usually go hand in hand yeah um, true and then of course you know the person who is going to impose her work ethic values and like sense of the world upon you whether you like it or not 
You know, all of these yeah. things are things that I have encountered. And, you know, the first two were actually in public service. The The third one was at a was at an actual or was at like a private job. But, you know, I've worked with all these people and it is terrifying how accurate they are. <laughs> Justin, did you also get a charismatic leader who came in to shake everything up? Sadly, no. Oh, see, there was the important what, what, yeah. we instead, what we instead had was an imported library system from Canada that changed how everything was done and actually made everything a lot better. Oh, well. Did you have a Mr. Pump, though? Um, we did have, like, an old dude who had, like, Eastern European stuff who, um, yeah, no, we didn't really have a Mr. Pump because because Mr. Pump is, like, is a fantasy of, a, of competence that you don't normally see in city jobs. What about a Banshee? Did you have a Banshee? Yes. <laughs> I just want to take a second actually to touch on something we haven't mentioned yet, which is the the Gollum philosophy, right? Of never getting bored, of always needing to have a uh, a job and a task, mm-hmm. of of being being completely willing to sit there and do the work for nine thousand years or however long it takes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing we haven't seen a lot of in. Pratchett previously, um, and it plays off so well against Moist kind of wildfire right now, bright burning um, drive to do things. Uh, it's a nice counterpoint. Yeah, yeah, you know the story, the the D plot or whatever you want to call it of Ang Amarad uh, oh, is yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Oh, so sad. That that actually like that death hits me every time. Yeah, for sure. And then you know his his cameo or death's one cameo in this book mm-hmm. because death doesn't come for Reacher at least. I mean, not that we see on the page. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, you know when when Ang Amrad is like, can I just stay here and like not do anything? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's as close to happy as he's ever going to get. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, I I have a couple of um, things that made me. I, I pulled up the things that made me laugh literally out loud. Mm-hmm. We've got freedom may be mankind's natural state, but so is sitting in a tree eating your dinner while it is still wriggling. <laughs> yeah, come at us, paleo people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the one that. Every time I read this book, I'm like, fuck, that's good writing. Four of his predecessors had predeceased in this very building. <laughs> and I'm like, what a line. It's a good line. Yeah. I, I do, like one of the ones that I love is the whole the whole uh, veterinary speech about angels. Yeah. It's just because oh, yeah. it's and that how it's repeated and how it's repeated later. And how Specifically, when Moist is repeating it to the carriage uh, brothers, who's mm-hmm. yeah. like remember, he's like, they don't believe any of this. What they believe is a good bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just like, yep. oh, I love it. Yeah, and and then when v- Vetinar is like, where did that money come from? And Moist is like, hmm, what? Oh, an angel <laughs> told me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he's you know hoist by his own petard because uh, because now he has to donate part of it to the to the temples, but that's that's predictable and reasonable. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, God, there's so many things in this book that be- have become Discworld's fandom memes. You know, everything from GNU to Anoya to all of the, all of these things that like just 
I forgot how late they came in the series. No, Anoya was one of the really early ones, wasn't it? Like, I thought that was in one from one of the very yeah. first books. We just haven't seen her in forever. Right. She might have been on the path to becoming a small god. Yeah. I remember that was one of the very first examples of small gods in Ankh-Morpork. Um, but I don't think she got a lot of face time. And mm-hmm. we've, I don't think we've ever seen her priesthood before. Because um, I, yeah, kind of I think that's a throwaway line. Yes. Speaking of the one priest who's just like freelancing for a dozen gods, never, never have I wanted to play a character more. <laughs> of like, <laughs> you know, oh, you know, on Tuesdays I'm working for X, Y, and Z gods. <sighs> mm-hmm. Perfect. That's that's fantastic. That's really. Fun. And she's the only one who who gets it right away too. Yeah. She's like hangs banners out and is like, "It could be you next." Yeah, yeah. Kind of an interesting thing on it. You mentioned you know the the uh, predecessors having predeceased. Um, when I started writing sort of the Serpentine, a lot of people were like, "Why are you using Gumshoe, which is an investigative game, to do fantasy?" And I think this book is a really good example that quite a few classic fantasy stories have a ton of investigation in them, even if that's, yeah. hey, go and fi- you know, find out why someone's doing whatever. And this is a really nice one, right? Where you can actually watch, like, if I were going to drop all the characters into into game terms, like, you can watch Moist going through the biz- the building and using his background knowledge and his investigative abilities in order to figure out what happened to the previous Postmasters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I got a little bit of a giggle out of that because uh, it's fun to see... Uh, uh, but it's masterfully written. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've touched a little, a lot actually on, you know, vulture capitalism and, and business preying on engineers, but mm. there's definitely other things that, that we want to pull out here. I have a, I have a small thing that I feel like has stood up pretty well. Um, it's, it's a reasonably throwaway line, but it's when moist and Miss Dearheart are in the bar and she skewers the dude's foot with her shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Moise is kind of appalled um, and also possibly aroused. Uh, but <laughs> but he, he says to her, he was only a drunk. And she replies with, yes, men say that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's a pair of lines that has, uh, that, that is very uh, still accurate. All yeah, those definitely. microaggressions. Have you seen yeah. the first episode of She-Hulk yet? Not I swear yet. this is relevant. So there's a scene in it, not to give spoilers, where um, Bruce Banner is trying to give advice about anger mm. um, uh, to She-Hulk. And she's like, you have no idea what it's like to be angry all the time because you go through life as a white man. Um, mm-hmm. And you and, you know, and it's uh, and it sort of goes on from there. And it is so true. I'm sure that's the first time that lots of men have ever heard about what it's like to have to deal with that constantly on a day to day basis. And this reminded me of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or that reminded me of this, you know, one of those two. Yeah, it was it was a really good pair of lines. Uh, the other the other thing that was horrifyingly prescient was the the other throwaway line of. Guilt aiming to become patrician one day. Everyone says so. <laughs> and he's in the Tump Tower. Uh-huh. And I'm like, Oof. fuck. Oof. God damn it, Terry. 
I'll have you know that you have, that guilt is far more competent than okay. Well, let's not get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, one of the one on prescience. One of the things that really interested me is this idea, right, of ancient letters being delivered decades later. Um, I think about what it's going to be like when, like, our grandchildren or great grandchildren decide to find out what their ancestors are like by going through their tweet history. <laughs> I, I comment on this. I'm terrified because there are some very specific tweets that my my descendants should not read. <laughs> it, it, it's basically, I mean, Sam, Samuel Pepys, uh, I think it's pronounced Pepys, right? Mm -hmm. In the 17th century, had that really famous series of diaries where he basically wrote down everything he did every day. Um, and which are this wonderful snapshot of what life was like back then for him. And that's going to be what it's like for everybody. I'm sorry about your tweets, Justin. Can you get them deleted from the Library of Congress? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the fact of the matter is they're going to see some very – it's the whole thing of like, yeah, there's going to be – if I end up with a Wikipedia page, my personal life section will be very, will be one of the ones where it's like – Never married, but had several close friends. Anna <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. put something that that didn't age well, but I think it actually rather did age well, which is Miss Macalariat being a nonce about the bathrooms. Yeah, um, because I mean this this isn't a thing that like this isn't a thing that's new to our decade. Um, yeah, I, yeah, there's there's a really there's a um, the 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 comic Dykes to watch out for. We all know it is like the origin of the Bechdel test, um, mm -hmm. but there's a there's a semi famous strip from it where one of the the women in the comic is a trans woman, and she has a moment about hesitating to use the bathroom after going to see a movie, and it's like you know you're fine you could do it, but the but the person who like there somebody does get called out in the bathroom but it's her butch friend who is a cis woman who had a, who had started off the, the 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 strip saying like oh you know is that all right and it's just like it feel like the more things change the more they stay the same yeah Although weirdly, Miss Macalariat is okay with trans people because uh, she she sees the one of the the golem who she previously thinks of as male just become Gladys. Yeah, I, and I think that this is a lot more about specific propriety than it is about how she feels about effectively trans people or mm -hmm. how Terry does. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, that it's it's sort of mocking or uh, not mocking, right? Um, uh, laughing at the idea that um, it doesn't. Although it might appear at first that she's upset about people of opposite gender in the bathroom, really, right? It's just a matter of propriety, mm -hmm. um, and that you put on the right uniform and it's fine. Change your name and you're and it's fine. Mm -hmm. That that part, the part with the golems with Gladys, was fine for me. It's when she has the think about the dwarfs. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. where I think it's yeah. more. Yeah, and that that was where it was like this is aged well, but I don't want to read it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that then that that storyline, that you know, multi-book storyline, is still in progress even yeah. now, and you know, we're going to touch on it again in Thud. And and Moist kind of just like placates her by being like, "Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. We'll make sure that everything is proper." And like, mm -hmm. you know, then also promotes her. And and I I didn't like that she was kind of 
rewarded for being a bigot there because she was specifically talking about like that, you know, with the dwarfs, you can't tell what genitalia they have. And and I didn't, you know, it's not like it's not like Miss Baccalaureate is a sympathetic or key character or anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, uh, this is too this is too real. I don't want to read it. Yeah. Yeah. But luckily, it's a small bit. On that subject, though, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, Terry has a clear through line of, of progressivism, but there's also this discussion in the early part of the book where, where they're talking about the campaign for equal heights, which is, you know, a, a dwarf advocacy, well, dwarf and other, you know, people of, of um, a certain stature advocacy group that's popped up that's trying to get people to not use certain short phrases that might potentially be offensive. And, you know, the, it really read to me like a, like a writer saying the fact that you're telling me not to use words bothers me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that one, I wasn't, I'm never sure how, how to feel about that one because it, um, I don't remember if we have any other context in any other books about who exactly the campaign for equal heights are. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I could see it as being two two possibilities. Either it's actually dwarfs advocating for themselves and saying we don't like these phrases, or mm-hmm. it is well-meaning humans being like, those phrases are mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of like, I, I it could go either way for me that the the thing of like, it struck me a little bit more along the lines of like people without disabilities saying, oh, well, that person's just differently abled, which mm-hmm. is not a phrase that people who are disabled actually like. Mm-hmm. It felt more in that vein. Yeah. Um, but I, I can definitely see where you would read it differently. I mean, I, I read it both ways, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to pull, mm-hmm. that, pull yeah. that out. Um, you know, and set against the the Golem Trust, it's a very interesting thing where they're just sort of like Golem quietly doing the work. I don't know. Yeah. Is there ever any ever anywhere where they ask the Golems what they want to be called? Um, there, I don't think any, there's a conversation. Yeah, there, there's with the Moist has with Pump, Mr. Pump, mm-hmm. who's like, actually, my name's Pump Nineteen. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I don't think there's like ever like a what would you prefer to be called thing, but. Like I know that Adora and Moist have a conversation about like you know, you know, you know you prefer you know, you know he prefers Pump Nineteen, but like he he's okay with you know, you know being called Mister Pump because it makes other people comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and she's very snarky to him there because you know the um. She refers to him as Pump 19 and Moist is like, oh, well, we call him Mr. Pump. And she's like, really? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Are you going to be smug about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay. So 33 books in, lots of references, yeah. but even more than usual, I feel like. It was fun seeing Dr. Lawn again. Yeah. And him having like his own hospital was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was also a callback to soul music, which was fun. Uh, it ain't nothing if it ain't got whole. The there's a piece that has like big thief of time energy for me, um, which is uh, actually I heard where the wizards were saying that the universe was destroyed all in one go, but instantly came back in one go. They said they could tell by looking, sir. 
<laughs> like that that really has extremely big thief of time energy. That's really funny. It, it's a, and it's a throwback to Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as well, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. yeah. The thing that we forgot to mention in our multiple references to the truth is that we do, in fact, have a character from the truth. In yeah, Sakharissa yeah. and Cripslock. Yeah. And Otto. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple. Um, I loved uh, when they first walk into the into the post office, and of course, all the warnings are scrawled on the wall <laughs> in something that feels like a, in the back room of the game portal, and the yeah. multiple warnings about Mrs. Cake, yeah. um, which just delights me. Actually, since she has, since Mrs. Cake has that precognitive ability, the the new pie and the the sorting machine probably was actually a significant problem for her. Chances are, That's, yes. And then, you know, just just now I was thinking that Stanley is actually a very funny inversion of Carrot because he was raised by peas as opposed to dwarves. I don't know. It's a joke that didn't really land with me, but like, I get it. (laughs) That must be that must be a reference to something that we that like we don't get. Who knows? I mean, I I mean, maybe it's a Carrot Peas. I don't know. Um vegetable joke i i'm not sure but yeah i really like how things which happen in this book are going to then echo forwards and i know you'll get to those in future yeah. in future episodes and stuff but it's uh it's pretty neat um i think we've covered pretty much everything down here yeah i think we i think we've gotten through pretty much everything we want to or at least i think I think this book might be, though, where I get my innate tr- distrust of anybody who publishes their mission statement and values on their website. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> that whole thing where Reacher publishes the, the Grand Trunk's new mission and their values, I'm just, and it's clearly positioned as gobbledygook. Yeah. I walked into a conference room a couple of weeks ago, and all the whiteboards were filled with people figuring out the mission statement. I've seen that sat in a lot of those meetings before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yes, and yeah, it's oftentimes groupthink and gobbledygook. But in this case, it's groupthink and gobbledygook that's designed to kill people. So yeah, yeah. you got that going for you. The the thing that I find really the most interesting about this book that that from a meta perspective is how many people who are fans of it, who have gone on into tech have carried some of it in their heart because Mm -hmm. there's actually entire websites uh, with instructions on how to put GNU Terry Pratchett in various pieces, everything from like Apache installs to the header of your website to databases. Uh, Reddit has it in their X header um, and everything. And you've That's got hilarious. in the uh, you've got it in our episodes too. I I do. I have Morse code in the, at the at the back of the of each episode. That makes me stupidly happy. <laughs> it's a shibboleth. Yeah. I know. I keep being obsessed with the with the throwaway bits in this book. Um, but there's the the thing with Reacher Guilt buying the rights to the dead, like deed polling their names, um, and building himself a family tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really reminded me of like. Mormons posthumously converting people. Hmm. Oh, one thing that I th- that, that um is is a fun little thing that's related to this book. So there was a Clax board game. Yes, where you are. I guess I I I I, I saw it once at um at a game at a local game store and I oh. never picked it up. 
Like an actual board yes. game. Yeah, really? an actual board game. Yeah, I did not know yeah. that. It's on. It's on my wish list of things to to one day get a copy. Yeah, of. Uh, you are. I, I believe what it is is like you're playing a clax relay and you're trying to like send down messages, and it includes like the actual clax language and how mm-hmm. to do that. So like, and, and like, sh- and shows like the the signal lights and how they're supposed to be arranged. Oh wow! Like it's supposed to be like six lamps in a two by three uh layout and it's it's very cool like it's it looks like you know one of those things where somebody went all in on the design of this game and they've got like little towers as pieces was that licensed Justin? yes or was it or was it yeah it is it is based on the books from terry pratchett yeah. Well, I, I knew I knew that was the case. I was just curious if it was illegally done or legally done. Okay. No, it's you can actually see a review of it on Board Game Geek. Oh, cool! I'll go look it up. Yeah, it's and I don't know. Maybe it's just like my imagination, but the 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 towers look very different, but more realistic than than like how I imagine them. Mm-hmm. Because it's like they are they are incredibly rickety looking. Yeah, although they get more solid as you go into the mountains, right? Yeah. <laughs> was the first Clax Tower that we saw in Fifth Elephant? I feel like it was. That sounds right. Or like somebody's gonna yell yeah. at me. Yeah, but you can't. We, we've got one of those thousand foot radio antennas here in town, and some years ago, somebody fell off the top of it because they didn't uh, click their safety cable. Oh, gosh. Um, and you have you have they're tall enough that you have enough time to think about all the bad decisions you just made on your way down. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, that's what I always think of when I read this book. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, and I had also seen like things of like people who had made uh clack shutters. This is like after I finished the book, I googled some stuff there and like there there's some stuff that showed of like people who have made like the clack shutters on their like like on the tops of towers and stuff and I'm just like that is very cool. Yeah, talking about like the 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 reason that he pulls that chunk of the book out for them to encode is because it has pictures and he knows that it has pictures <laughs> yes. which means it'll take time yeah it's such it's such a good heist book let's see what, what else is uh i don't yeah i think I, I think that's all the stuff i have for the for the book here it's definitely one of the ones that i read and reread and i enjoy it and i find something different every time i feel so lucky that you invited me to um to be on this episode because i love this book um <laughs> and uh this is really fun um, before we do our ratings, uh, Kevin, I, I know that Swords of the Serpentine is out in right now to buy. Yes, right? it is. Yep, it's uh, you yeah. can get it on PelgrinePress.com. I think the PDF go the PDF will be on sale there. PDF only will be on sale by the time this episode hits. The hardcover comes with a PDF as well, and of course, you can get it from your uh, friendly local gaming store as well. Um, and, uh, if you want people to find you on the internet, where should they do that? Sure. I'm on Twitter at, at Kevin Culp, K-U-L-P. Um, that's probably the easiest place. The, I think I'm on Reddit with Serpentine RPG, although mostly on Reddit, I'm talking about shark movies. So, you know, right? <laughs> look, look, listen, some, that was pe- a fun side project. I've been following that too. Some people spent the pandemic helping the less fortunate. Some people spent the pandemic learning new language. I and my friend have watched 133 crappy shark movies. So you know what? <laughs> we all have our strengths. Is all is what I'm saying. We made two podcasts, so you know who who are we? Yeah, there, there we go. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, Twitter at Kevin Culp. Um, the uh, and I talk a fair amount about game design and barbecue and crappy shark movies. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm envious of your barbecue rig. Uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, yeah, Pelgrane <laughs> also has the other book, most of the other games I made, including Time Watch. I've got, at some point in the next six months, I'm guessing, I will uh, probably crowdfund uh, my upcoming game, which is called Loot the Kingdom, which is a game of um, unintended hero- heroism and deliberate larceny. Um, well, that sounds so, fun. Uh, it should be fun. So we'll uh, we'll see when that when that hits. Awesome. Now let's uh, do our silly ratings. Our scientific um, system. Our scientific sense. Yes. Uh, uh, Justin, you want to lead us off? I have three dollars and twenty eight cents of fiat currency. I mean stamps. <laughs> uh, Kevin, this book. I give this book one spectacularly winged fig leaf out of an entire golden statue. It is the entire best bit. Uh, Anna. Uh, a whole page of shiny pins arranged in nice, neat rows. Uh, and I will give this book one perfect letter delivered at exactly the right time. And now we have a bit that we are going to do here. Now Justin gets to read the back cover of the next book. Once in a god's forsaken hellhole called Coombe Valley, trolls and dwarves met in bloody combat. Centuries later, each species still views the other with simmering animosity. Lately, the influential dwarf... Grag Ham Crusher has been fomenting unrest upon Ankhmore Pork's more diminutive citizens, a volatile situation made far worse when the pint-sized provocateur is discovered bashed to death with a troll club lying conveniently nearby. Commander Sam Vimes of the City Watch is aware of the importance of solving the Ham Crusher homicide without delay. Vimes' second most pressing responsibility, in fact, next to always being home at 6 p.m. sharp to read Where's My Cow to Sam Jr., but more than one corpse is waiting for Vimes in the eerie, summoning darkness of a labyrinthine mine network being secretly excavated beneath Ankhmore Pork streaks. And the deadly puzzle itself is pulling him deep into the muck and mire of superstition, hatred, and fear. And perhaps all the way to Coombe Valley itself. All right, cool. It, it's such a good book. You're going to have fun with this. It is. We're back to Vimes. Yep. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.